Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Larry Vold. Well, if you haven't done so, find your sermon outline there, and let's open our Bibles to the book of Leviticus, please. Leviticus chapter 17 today. How many did your homework? All right, good. We've been doing an overview exposition of the book of Leviticus. Lots of chapters, lots to go through in a short period of time. Eight weeks we've been in this, well we will be in this book. And today we come to the section of Leviticus known by many as the Holiness Code. This section actually comprises chapter 17 all the way to the end of the book. But the heart of the Holiness Code is right here in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20. I'm referencing chapter 24 as well, although we're not going to be in that text today because there's an illustration of God's holiness in that chapter and it sort of ties together this section of scripture. The issue behind the holiness code is to discern which things God wanted for his people Israel to do and which things still apply to us today. And I'm going to do my best to point out that not all the things we'll look at today necessarily apply because either Christ fulfills those things or we have clear instruction from the New Testament to show us otherwise or there tends to be ceremonial or contextual issues that seem to point back to that time rather than future to where we are today. And having said that, there, while there may be some controversial points within this section in terms of, gee, what do we hold on to, what do we let go of, I don't think any of that controversy really interferes with the plain sense meaning and the thrust of these sections of Scripture, and I'll do my best to show you that today. The thing I want you to get into your mind as we break into this text today is that essentially the Holiness Code provides a clear view of how we can reflect through the way we live God's holiness, and that's really the point of our Christian lives, is it not? I mean, we're all about reflecting the holiness of God. And God's people have never looked at holiness as something uh, that is unattainable, but rather something that comes through obedience to God and the power of his enabling. In other words, God doesn't command us into things that we, we can't do. And yet at the same time, he doesn't call us to that which he doesn't already provide for us. In other words, to become holy or to pursue a life of holiness can only be possible when we have the provision that God gives to us. There's no way we can live holy lives by ourselves, right? We can't live the holy life that God has called us. And I said a few weeks ago, if you're trying to live a holy life apart from a true relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's an impossibility. And it's going to be the most frustrating thing in your life. So what we as Christ followers are all about is simply trying to live out the reality of what God has worked into our lives. We're actually just trying to live out the way he's made us. Holiness is a, is a pursuit of becoming who we really are, and that's the point. And I hope you get that this morning. We're not trying to achieve something that we're not. We're trying to live in the skin of what we are. Does that make sense? 
And this is a beautiful thing about Christianity and about following Christ is that we're not trying to live up to some high lofty goal that maybe we'll strive and get there someday. No, we're just simply trying to pursue the course of what God has provided, what God has enabled, and what God has called us to be. We're trying to live in the skin of who we really are. Our desire to be holy and thus reflect God's holiness is simply proof that we belong to him. And so that's a great starting off place today in, in terms of just where you are with the Lord. Is that your passion? Is that your desire to reflect the holiness of God in your life? Because if that isn't, then maybe you would ask the question, am I really a child of God or am I just religious? Am I just going through motions? And that's a little bit of kind of where we need to start today. Now, we're going to look at four big chapters, and there, there's a lot in here. Let me do a quick overview so we get a picture of where we're going today. Chapter 17, if you read through chapter 17, lots there about blood, lots of blood. And we learn there that the life of an animal or a human is in the blood. No blood, no life, okay? We're going to see what that means for us today. Chapter 18, we learn the many ways that we can be influenced towards sexual immorality. And in chapter 19, we learn that there's a right and wrong way to treat others and that if we're God's people, we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And then in chapter 20, we learn the all-important reality of the consequences that come when we disobey God's law. So we'll be dropping in and out of these texts as we go along this morning, but that's an overview of the chapters. Here's the way I'm going to frame the message this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to frame the message in the idea that Reflecting God's holiness where it really matters will cause us to commit to five overarching principles in our life. In other words, in other words, reflecting God's holiness where it really matters will demand us taking a very clear and appropriate look at five specific things. Okay, I hope these will make sense to you as we move along. The first one, the first area where reflecting God's holiness really matters is the area of authority. Would you say that with me? Authority. Now I'm going to skip chapter 17 just for a moment and we're going to jump into chapter 18 because as I read through this whole section, I discovered, and maybe you did too, there's a phrase that kind of runs throughout this whole section, chapters 18, 19, and 20 specifically, where the phrase says, I am the Lord. Did you see that so many times in that text? I am the Lord. See it here in chapter 18, verse 2. See it there in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 21, verse 30, chapter 19, verse 3, 4, 10, 4, 12, 14. It's all through this passage. And why does God keep repeating himself? In fact, 24 times between chapters 18 and 20, God says to Moses, and as he's speaking truth, he says, I am the Lord. Now the clue to this goes back to chapter 11. Hold your place in Leviticus 17 there and just drop back a couple pages, chapter 11. Let's review for a minute, verse 44. There we read for the first time in the book, first time we read these words, I am the Lord your God. And what follows, this is the first time we also read in this book, verse 44, be holy because I am holy. And it's repeated again in verse 45. God is linking this command for us to be holy to something about himself, his identity. He reveals himself as I am the Lord. Now some of you were with us when we did a series on the Jehovah names of God. And that word Lord there and all through this section and all through the book of Leviticus is the word Jehovah. This is the name of God throughout the book of Leviticus. Why? Because 
It's his covenant name. It's his relationship name. It's he is our God and we are his people. And this is really important to understand. And the proof of this relationship, this covenant relationship, is not that we are co-equal with God or that he's co-equal with us, but that every time we see this phrase, I am the Lord, God is reminding the people, watch this, of who's in charge. That because we're in relationship with the living God, this is always the question, who's calling the shots in my life? When I suggest that the first area where reflecting God's holiness in what really matters is authority, I'm asking the question of who calls the shots in our lives? Who has the final word? Who has our attention? Who has the ultimate authority over our lives? The first, and in some manner of speaking, the most dramatic way to reflect God's holiness, according to this simple observation in Leviticus 18 through 20, listen, is simply submitting to his authority. When we submit to the authority of God, we reflect his holiness. And if we don't ref- if we don't submit to his authority, we don't reflect his holiness. So who's in charge? Every time I think about this idea of who's in charge, I think about what happened uh, off the coast of Newfoundland in 1995. This is a radio conversation released by the Chief of Naval Operations between the United States Navy and, and the Canadians. Listen to this. Here's the Americans. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians respond. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to, devo- to avoid a, co- a collision. The Americans come back. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians come back. No, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans. This is the uh, aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians respond. This is a lighthouse. It's your call. Now, true story. Now, the captain of that ship immediately realized there was no other choice to make but to submit. Because lighthouses win in those kinds of problems. Listen, when we we come into the presence of Almighty God and He is saying to us 24 times, in three chapters of his word that is filled with instructions about reflecting his holiness. And he says, I am the Lord. Here's what he's saying. You could write this down in your notes. What I'm telling you is true and you have my word on it. What I'm telling you is true and you have my word on it. When you're in a tough situation in your life and you need counsel or wisdom, where do you go? Who do you turn to? And when you turn to the Lord and the Lord speaks into your heart, this is the direction you should take. This is, the, this is my will for your life. And you say, I'm sorry, God, divert your course. God says, I'm sorry, I'm the Lord. I know what's best for you. This is my word and it's true. You have my word on it. If you're in a tough marriage today and things seem really dark to you, who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the Lord, your own feelings. 
You're in a financial situation that seems impossible. And you know that if you just cheat a little bit, you're going to come out a little better at the end of the day, it would seem. But the Lord says, no, you need to do it my way. You're dealing with some kind of temptation in your life that you know to succumb to would just take you one step further away from what God's perfect will for your life is, stated will, desired will, whatever you want to put in that phrase. What are you going to do? Who's going to call the shots in your life? Now, until we acknowledge God's sovereign rule in our lives, listen, holiness is merely a religious word that has very little meaning. This is very practical. I meet people all the time who assume that they're godly people without ever submitting to God's authority. I'm a Christian. I just don't really think that God's got it right on this one. No, that's, that's not the way it works. If we're Christ followers, we submit to God's will. As hard as it is, as impossible as it feels, we submit. And then we let God show his favor and his glory in rewarding and blessing what he calls us to do. I meet people all the time that say, it's all right. I, I, I've got this worked out with God. In fact, here's the popular descriptive for people in today's culture who don't want to submit to God's authority but want to appear to be in relationship with him is that they are spiritual. But the biblical word is submissive. If you're just spiritual and not submissive, you're just the way God created every person on planet earth. He's created us all spiritual because we all have this little interwoven connector that says, I need a relationship with God. I need my life to be factored after God. I need to be under God's authority. Romans 1 says we turn all that on its ear and we go our own independent way because our hearts are depraved, we're dead in our sins, we're lost in our sins. It's only by God's grace that he's even given us the desire to follow him. And once we come in faith and through repentance to a loving God who has died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, come into our lives to live by faith in our lives... Once that's taken place in our life, it's his empowering. It's what he wants to see happen in our lives that we listen to, that we get our hearts and lives around. Listen, we're either spiritual rebels or we're spiritual subjects to a sovereign God. Which are you? The second category, now we're going to jump back into the text in terms of specifics, is the issue of life. The first is authority. Let's say the word life. And here in chapter 17, this section of the Holiness Code comes down to some obvious contextual and ceremonial concerns that don't necessarily apply to us. Um, here we learn about blood and the idea of a blood offering. Look at verse 3. Let's just pick it up in verse 3. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle from the, of the Lord, that man shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making in the open fields. They must bring them to the priest, that is to the Lord, at the entrance of, to, at the, to the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. That priest is to sprinkle the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for generations to come. 
by the way, to skip down to, to verse 11, why is it bloodshed? For the life, verse 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Okay, here's what's going on here. It's a little bit con- uh, confusing for some of us because we say, what does this mean? Some of us read this passage and we said, gee, I like rare meat. I don't want to be unclean and I don't want to disobey God. What am I doing here? Well, the context of this is here's what's going on. Some in the camp of Israel were slaying their domestic animals for food out and away from the tabernacle. And in this way, they were sidestepping God's prescribed manner of worshiping him. Remember, animals were scarce and eating meat was a luxury. And so there were people that were saying they were sacrificing, but... As 17 uh, verse 5 and 6 point out, that the, the people actually in their sacrifice outside of God's prescribed area of sacrifice, they're actually sacrificing to demons. They were sacrificing probably under the old system of the Egyptian mindset of sacrifice. And, and I know that's, this is very contextual. We don't get it. There's a lot said here that it goes without saying for the people who are listening. For us, it's a little harder. But the idea here is that that this, if they were to bring an offering, they were not to do it out in the fields. They were to bring it to the tent of meeting, and there they were to have a sacrifice of a fellowship offering. Remember, the fellowship offering is where you shared it together with your family and with your friends. It was a, it was a way that you could enjoy uh, making a meal sacred, and it was a beautiful thing. So there are some people that just elected to do it outside in their own prescribed way. Now, in studying this passage, I thought of I thought of many people who are not entirely different from those who are in violation here. In other words, they devise their own places of worship to meet their own indulgent desires. I don't know how many times I've met people when I say, hey, you know, come on, be a part of church. Would you like to come to church? They say, I don't need to worship God in the community of God's people. I do it on the golf course where his creation is beautiful. And I always want to follow up and say, tell me how you worship God on the golf course. Now, I'm not saying you can't worship God. We should be able to worship God anywhere we go. I'm just illustrating the fact that some people make an excuse for not really following the prescribed manner of worship that we find in the New Testament. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as is the habit of some, but continue to come together, right? Lest lest we kind of fall away, lest we become cold and disinterested in our spiritual lives. It is the picture of God's people to come together. And here in the Old Testament, at the foot of Mount Sinai, as the people were getting ready to go into the promised land, God says when you bring your offering, you bring it in the context of the gathering of God's people at the tent of meeting. I don't want to belabor that point. I just want to point out the fact that some people have their own self-styled prescription of worship. I worship in my house alone. I worship with my TV because I can't find a church where there aren't any hypocrites. (laughs) Hey, come on, there's room for more hypocrites. (laughs) Like those under the old covenant who are being told to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle, so many of us today bring their worship to places outside, and they're really not worshiping God. And I can't ultimately judge that, but this is my assumption, that there's a lot of what is called worship outside that really isn't worship. But there's something here about the blood in this passage that reminds us of the preciousness of life. God wanted to remind the people, watch this, that by prohibiting the eating of blood, they were reminded that life belonged to God. And and here we have this, at least the initiation or a picture 
of, of God's holiness in sending his own son, Jesus, who would pay the blood sacrifice for his children. Whenever we shed blood uh, for anything other than what God has called, or when we take life by our own hands, we, we commit an unholy act. And there's nothing wrong. So I, I'm, please don't, I hope this is really clear right now. The Bible is not telling us we can't eat meat that's rare or that there's blood in the meat. The point that God was teaching his Old Testament people was that life was in the blood and that there's a sanctity of life that's really important. And this is all a picture of what's coming in Christ. By the way, this past week, a lot of our intercessors were involved in just coming alongside of a little life, a, a life that was born just a week before she was five days old, I believe, when she went in for open-heart surgery. Well, it didn't go in. She stayed in the hospital because she had a, a defect in her heart. And little Bella has, has astounded the doctors and nurses and everyone that's been praying for her because they didn't really give her much of a chance. She had full reconstructive heart surgery. And I learned that the heart of this little girl, Bella, is the size of your thumbnail. That's about the size of your heart at that age, five days old. And they did full open-heart reconstructive surgery. Praise God for that. And when they took her off the machine that was keeping her heart beating, it was as if the doctors had not, this family has been the, the, through the roller coaster all week. Will she live? Will she? And she's not out of the woods, but I'm giving testimony this morning that God's people have been praying, they've been praying, and the glory of God has been shown in his sustaining power. Now watch this. He can also show his power if he decided to take Bella. Bella belongs to him. Family knows this as hard as it is and they're, they're just hoping their hands and they're crying out to God and would you remember to keep praying for Bella. She's, she's still in a very precarious place. But I'm just pointing out, here's a family striving for and fighting for the life of their little newborn and, and, and here so often in America we, we just throw life away. We, we live in a bloodthirsty culture. We have a fascination with blood. We we love it in movies, and, and there's even a particular genre of entertainment called horror or slasher films. Consider the proliferation of murder in our culture, the murder of innocent children born, not born because of abortion. We, we are a murderous culture, and I think there's a lot here in chapter 17 about us too, and it's not about how we want our steak, it's about how we value life. And what we see in terms of the sanctity of life. If, if you're going to reflect God's holiness, you've got to be all about authority and you've got to be all about the sanctity of life. Here's the third thing. Oh, by the way, before we jump off of that, let's just remember Jesus here for a moment. Because remember we said in Leviticus everything is pointing to Jesus? And here we see Jesus coming into the picture through his precious blood. 1 Peter 1.19, don't turn there, but it's the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin, that justifies us, Romans 5.9, that redeems us, Ephesians 1.7, and that brings us near to God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Blood is precious to God, and his instructions here help us see the picture of the timelessness of the sanctity of life through that blood. Because Christ is the atoning sacrifice and the blood issue is his blood. Authority, life. The third area where reflecting God's holiness really matters is in our sexuality. Say the word sexuality. Now, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we, we entered into this when we came to chapter 15. I said we were coming back and here we are. We're back. And we're going to talk a little bit about sexuality right now. It's really important. And I want to jump right away 
in chapter uh, 18, just right into the text, because throughout this chapter, and if you read it, you were probably amazed like I was to see the many ways that God tells us that we should abstain from immorality and the different ways that immorality comes to us. The way we reflect God's holiness is through our sexuality, properly expressing ourselves as God's word commands. Now I'm going to give you a couple principles that we're going to jump into the text with I think will help kind of see all of what's going on here. And the first one is going to be in verse 3. Let me just read the text and then we'll give you the principle. He says, you must not do, let me just back up. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Here it is. You have my word and you can trust me on this. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Now, what follows in the text is all the, all the prohibitions about sexual immorality. So here's the principle I want you to get down. It's a mistake to define sexual morality by what is acceptable in culture. Do you get that in verse 3? He says, look, I don't want you to define what's right and wrong by where you've been or where you're going. I've got, a, I've got something that is, for them, really new in a, in, a, in a big way because God details all up to this point, the law was focused on basically a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here is the nitty-gritty of our sexuality. All through chapter 18, all the way through. And there's amazing prohibitions here, but right out of the chute, we have to see that morality is defined by God. His standards don't change. Many of us are confused about morality because we take our cues from society, not Scripture. The permissiveness of immorality in our culture is proof that God's authority doesn't matter much to people. The only thing that seems to matter is what can be normalized or legalized. And this is a huge issue for the Christian community as well. You know, without trying to sound like our nation has ever been Christian, it hasn't. There was a moral base in our, in our uh in our nation's past that had a far closer connection to Scripture than it does by a long shot today. And the point I'm just trying to make here is that our whole nation, in terms of its sense of morality, has changed radically in the last 50 years even. And we've been around for a lot longer than that. The point I'm trying to make is is that the slide continues to go down. And many of our younger generation coming up just thinks, we assume that whatever is becomes normal in our culture or whatever becomes legalized in our culture is, is all right with God or it's moral because it's either normal, it seems, or it's legalized. But that's not the way God defines morality. And by the way, that's why at Neighborhood Church, uh, we are committed to the full teaching of God's Word, the full counsel of God's Word, and we want to teach it unashamedly. And, and we want to do that so that, watch this, so that the main thing gets the attention. And what is the main thing throughout the entire Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our mission is not morality. Our mission is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you change people's morals, you don't, you don't really change what's systemically wrong in a person's life. So you can see the tension that's involved here. I'm concerned about the morality of our culture And I'm going to preach when we come to texts like this on the morality of God's word 
speaking to us to live a moral life, but our campaign is not morality. Our campaign is the gospel. Because until the gospel gets a hold of a person's life, they're going to continue up and down on that scale wherever they might be, and that really doesn't matter. At the end, of, You could even live a moral life and die and go to hell. So our mission is more than morality. The second thing I want to point out in verses 6 through 30 is that sexual, sexual immorality is not new. It's nothing new. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of get a sense that, wow, we're, Western culture is so cutting edge. You know, if you do your history and you go back in history, look at the, look at the Egyptians and what they looked at, at in their sexual practices. Look at the Canaanites and the Philistines, the, the people that the Israelites were going into at the time. Go fast forward, go to the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it's, it's an abomination. There is so much sexual freedom. You kind of look at our day and you go, we think we're so out there and edgy in our culture and there's nothing new. It's all the same stuff. It's all just a bunch of dead bones. It's just not right. It's just, there's just a, a big, big disconnect. And so verses 6 through 30, which is kind of a detailed accounting of, of sexual immorality that we need to stay away from, you kind of read this and you go, what? A man with his daughter or a, you know, a guy with his mom or his, his aunt or, you know, just like, who would do that? And you go, all over the world that happens. So then here's the third principle, and that is that God is clear on what his people should abstain from sexually. God is clear. Whatever else may be noted here in verses 6 through 30, the most obvious is that all types of sexual practices and or preferences by individuals other than those between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage under God, in terms of a, a, a marriage as defined in Scripture as between one man and one woman, any other sexual activity outside of those loving parameters, the Bible says, is forbidden. And God says, I am the Lord. <laughs> Let me sum it up. Verse 6, sexual relations with a close relative, out of bounds. One's mom, out of bounds. Verse 7, one's stepmom, out of bounds. One's sister, stepsister or stepmother, out of bounds. Granddaughter, aunt. Wife or uncle, verse 14. Daughter-in-law, verse 15. In-law, verse 16. Both a woman and her daughter or granddaughter. 17. Spouses, siblings, verse 18. Sex with same gender, homosexual sex, out of bounds. Verse 22. Sex with an animal, bestiality, out of bounds. Implied also is anyone who, who are not married. Premarital sex, chapter 19, verse 20. And chapter 20, verse 10. That would include pornography. It would include extramarital sex, cohabitational sex. As we come to the New Testament, the umbrella word porneia included an array of sexual diversions that were outside the loving boundaries that God has for his people. Listen, the permissive and pervasive, immoral and ungodly practice of sexuality throughout our culture and world, and yes, even in the church, is to be reckoned with. Now, as concerned as I am about all the sex sins that are around us and, and in our culture, can I just be really clear on something this morning for all of you? I am more concerned and disturbed with the permissiveness of sexual activity of Christ followers who attend 
and are members of churches in this church and outside this church. I mean, I think that there's a, there's a sense in which we're always looking at, oh, look at what culture's doing, and oh, it just, you know, we are inflamed, but we really don't seem to be all that concerned about the sexual impropriety and behaviors of people that call themselves Christians in the confines and in the context of the Christian church. And, and I, I just want to be clear that it's more disturbing to me. I expect culture to keep going this way. But it's more disturbing to me as a pastor who works with people, who works with individuals, who sees the wreckage, who is picking up the garbage and sees enough of the stuff in my own life in terms of thought patterns and, and compromises and all of that, that to know that I am a sinner and that we're all sinners. And if that doesn't make us want to call out to a loving God and say, God, would you refine us? Would you make us the holy people that you've called us to be, invited us to be, provided us for us to be, so that we could be your representative, so that we could reflect your holiness and if if the culture around us could somehow see that we were truly serious about our sexual purity maybe they would listen to us a little more I'm just you know that's just my heart on this it's okay it's all right no time to clap no time to clap all right Uh, but it's important here's one more thing I want to point out in this text um Verses 27 and 28, sexual immorality makes a society unhealthy. Um, Did you notice in verses 27 and 28, it says, For these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. That's strong language God uses. What I take from that is that there's a sickness that happens in any society where sexual permissiveness grows and grows and grows. That's a, that's, a, that's a sickness that ends up being a detriment to the whole of society. And I just think that's important to point out. We think we're so free and we think we've got so many liberties, but our freedoms and our liberties are going to choke us to death. And that's true for Christians who think that somehow God doesn't care, that he's, you know, he's all right because after all, we're forgiven. You know, that, that kind of thinking. That also turns around on us too. We'll get to that in just a minute. Whatever else can be said about this text, I, we cannot leave chapter 18 without this one last comment. And that is that when it comes to sexual immorality, there is no sexual sin that God can't or won't forgive if a person repents and calls upon his name. And I'm glad to point this out to you. In fact, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, or quickly, if you can, if not, we'll put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Just to remind us that this is not, chapter 18 of Leviticus is not contextual only, it's not ceremonial, it's not just for the day of Israel. Listen to what Paul says as he writes to the Corinthians. He says in verse 9 of chapter 6, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. 
but you, and if you have your own Bible there, underline these words, were. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I point out the word were there because that's aorist tense. That's past tense, settled reality. This is what we were, we're no longer that. God has made us something new. And when we repent of sexual sin, when we come back to where we need to be with God, as a Christ follower, we are forgiven. And if you've never come to know Christ, no matter where you've been sexually, no matter what you know, dalliance or definition you've placed or whatever, wherever you've been, if you repent, God will forgive. And God can make something new in your life. It's important to point that out. Our sexuality is a huge area for reflecting God's holiness. So is life. So is authority. Here's a fourth area quickly. Chapter 19, we come to the issue of others. Say others with me. The section in my Bible is entitled Various Laws. I don't know what your Bible says. This is a really hard passage to outline because the problem with this section is that there's just so many warnings and concerns addressed. But because this is the holiness code, we know that all these things are important if we're going to reflect God's holiness wherever we are. And I think there are some things truly contextual and in, in this particular section. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit. But I want to point out that right in verse 2, again we read what is really the theme of the book of Leviticus. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And if you look down the list of commands, notice that there are things that come right out of the moral law of God's Ten Commandments. And there's a mingling of rules and regulations that surrounded the fellowship offerings in verses 5 through 8. For example, in verse 9, there's things about how to help the poor. In verses 10, 32, and 33, there's things about how to treat a foreigner. More of the Ten Commandments, verses 11 through 13. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name or profane the name of my God. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Verse 14 and 13, caring for the disabled, paying wages to workers, justice issues. Verse 15, don't pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor, favoritism to the great. And there are some things that simply don't make sense to us, uh, but must have made sense more to them, like the mating of animals or blending seed or fabric. Like, I don't think it's a big deal that we have polyester and cotton shirts. But it was here. The reason I don't think that that's a timeless, forever kind of issue is because we find nothing of that in the New Testament. These things seem to be, as we talked earlier in the book of Leviticus, things that had to do with uh, the ritual of God's people being different from the nations around them. And also, in some ways, there were health and... and, uh, wholeness issues that God was building into his people. Some things get a little bit more prickly, a little bit more difficult, contextually wise, uh, tattoos. But that's kind of nestled, verses 27 through 31, in, in sort of things that deal with occultic practices, the cutting of hair, trimming of beards. You know, sometimes I hear people, they come to me and they say, hey, come on, what about tattoos? You know, it's right here. And they've got a beard that's nicely trimmed. And I go, have you looked at the verse before that? It talks about not trimming your beard at the edges or your hair. Looks like you got one of those. Why are you doing that? That's always a tough thing for people to answer. It's a, it's, it's a little bit difficult. And I, I'm just saying if you're going to be whole with it, you've got to be whole with it. Everything. 
And that's why the difficult, pass- the difficult challenge of exegesis and what does the whole of Scripture teach, I think what's going on with tattoos is not just the tattoo, but it's the cutting of the flesh, it's a mutilation of the flesh, and it's all around the practice of, of occultic uh, practices that we're calling upon demons or spirits by the cutting of our bodies and putting marks on our bodies that were to the demon gods. So I guess I could say, yeah, if you want to put tattoos on your body that show to like some pagan god, that, yeah, you, you know, as a Christ follower, probably not a good idea, probably not, not right in scripture, but I know some people that they kind of mark their bodies up with, with signposts for God, the cross, scripture, all that, I, I just think, I, I don't see any prohibition anywhere in the New Testament. No corroboration with this. Now, it, this is hard. and I'm, I'm telling you right up flat. You want to look at all this stuff? You want to look at commentaries? People are on different sides of the issue. But I'm, I'm just simply pointing out, here's, here's the big idea, okay? If you're taking notes, the big idea is this. It comes to verse 18 where we find this little phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember when Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment? And he was asked in the Gospels, and Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was quoting Leviticus 19.18. Why would Jesus quote Leviticus 19.18? I think he was summing up what 19 is all about. Now, there was no chapter 19, but this section of the holiness code, this whole section is about others. It's about how we treat others. This is so apropos for some of us who feel a little riled about people that are outside of the system of God's love in terms of a relationship, a covenant relationship. And so we, we fill our spirits in hatred for people that are unlike us, who don't live like us, who don't behave like us, who, who don't act like us, who don't speak like us, and we start hating them, who don't even have a religion like ours. And I think at the end of the day, we still have to come under, even though we have to hold our convictions tightly and strongly, we still have to love people. We still have to love people. We still have to think of others. I'm not going to apologize for my deeply held convictions about sexuality, about life, about God's commands. But I'm also going to love the person who disagrees with me. And I hope that people that come through these doors, if they sit on the other side of some issue and they're trying to figure out what it means to be a Christ follower, I hope they are knocked over with the love of God's people. And let God work that stuff out in their lives. We don't want to be soft on sin, but we also need to be strong in grace. And let God's grace work in people's lives. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs, Proverbs 10, 12 says. Okay, so areas where reflecting God's holiness really matters, I think, are authority, life, sexuality, others. And then lastly, chapter 20, I see this issue of consequences. Say consequences. All all through this chapter is all about what happens when you break these laws. (laughs) And did you notice how many people die the consequences if you're taking notes chapter 20 the consequences for sin and disobedience are serious somebody has to die I kept seeing that as I read through the passage oh my goodness look at all this capital punishment I realized had I lived during this time I don't think I would have made it past my teen years sin is serious business to God 
But watch this. As I was thinking through this, wow, somebody has to die. Somebody has to die. The Holy Spirit said, yeah, somebody did. His name was Jesus. He died for all of it. Every sin, every shortcoming, every transgression, every act of rebellion, every indifferent thought, everything that is so true of us, dead, lost, depraved, ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why the gospel just comes shining through the book of Leviticus. Because on every page, condemned, 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 condemned. I would not be alive. But Jesus died for my sins. Which brings us to that last point. Christ has paid the penalty as the final atoning sacrifice for these and all other sins. Can I read to you Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 14? But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's Leviticus language. That's you and me. Your kids reading this might be grateful that if they ever cursed you as a parent or if you've ever committed sexual sin of any kind, if you've ever fallen short of the glory of God, you're grateful too. Thankfully, because under the new covenant, we have the assurance that all our sins are forgiven in Christ. But it also strikes me that God makes it clear to those living under the old covenant that there were grave consequences for those who engaged in immorality, whether it was rooted in in injustice, murder, stealing, doing wrong to a neighbor, or sexual sin, and God is warning us too. In a different way, perhaps, but he's still warning us. Those of us under the new covenant realize the law of the harvest. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. So even as a Christ follower, if there are things that we're indulging in that are unhealthy for us or or immoral to us or for us, we can count on the fact that God is eventually going to cause to grow what we're planting in our lives. And he wants to save us the trial, the trouble, the problems, the consequences that come. Okay, well, the Holiness Code is an interesting section of Leviticus. Uh, We kind of reach the apex of what I call the heavy sledding of this book today. And for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at more celebrative points and how God wants us to remember these things and take us through life with these things in our hearts. But I can't help but to think that maybe someone today, right now, right here, needs a fresh realignment in their lives. Authority, life, sexuality, others, consequences. And right here today, we'd say, Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for the reminder from your word. And if you've never come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, can I just invite you today You'll never work up to it enough. You'll never be good enough. So just admit, as a sinner, you need him. And you know what? He'll meet you right now. You confess and repent and say, Jesus, be number one in my life. He'll do it.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. And I pray that even now, this moment, we might each one, Lord, take inventory in our lives. We invite you to be that refiner's fire that comes through our hearts that would somehow in, in some way align our hearts more to you as Christ followers. I pray our prayer room today would be filled with people confessing, people acknowledging their need to be in closer relationship with you, to be the people that you created us to be. And if there's anyone here today in the sound of my voice that realizes that they've been on the outside of faith, that today by your grace and through faith they might simply trust in you and that the full atonement of what Jesus, what you did at the cross would be for them, that they might know your love and forgiveness and live a lifetime of response in thanking you and praising you for freeing us from our sins and delivering us from the bondage of evil and placing us in the kingdom of, of your son. We just pray now that your work would be done even here, right now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.